Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. How's everybody doing? So who's read the Fiat Standard yet? It's time, quiz time. <laughs> I've been buried in it. The reread is great. I'm learning some things. Nice. Did you read the, the final draft or did you read one of the earlier drafts? I'm right at the end of the final draft. Okay. You hadn't read the first one before? Yes. This is my third reading. Oh, wow. I'm a little slow. <laughs> That's or you're amazing. extra smart, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> I did finally get something that you've been talking about that I hadn't really 
gotten a grasp on, and that is combining the idea that the state exists for a reason and and then understanding well let me cut to a question the question i've got is like this current futures etf with gold, they use that to manipulate the price. I, I know there's an argument there, but it seems obvious to me. But with Bitcoin, there's so many people, the, the ability to look and see the quantity, they can't impact it. But it does appear that this future stuff is starting to modify the price anyhow. What, what's your thoughts on that? Sorry, what is it? The what? The the, the futures ETF. The yeah, ETF what about it? Being only futures, it's it's pushing the purchase of futures. I think. Yeah, you're trying to say that maybe that's uh, they're doing this so they can manipulate the price. Uh, I, I think it's more of a. Hail Mary pass kind of thing. In other words, let's not give them a real or a future-based so, one. Yeah, but what's the motivation there? I mean, I, I'm, I'll admit, I don't really understand why they're doing it, and I don't really have good answers for why, so I'm curious as to what you think. Well, it, it, it appears to be an attempt to just create fake quantity. I mean, it... it what is the quantity of gold on the face of the planet? There are so many people, you know, the, the, the numbers you see on the Chicago mercantile of how much gold is traded seems insane to me. I'm not a commodities expert. Now, I hear people argue that that's just the normal course of business for how commodity trades and future trades work and that those numbers don't mean anything. Um, and, and perhaps that's true. Perhaps gold price has never been manipulated. I mean, maybe, maybe that's where my question starts. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know. I, I remember when I was, when I was a gold bug, I went down the rabbit hole of trying to understand, um, all these claims that uh, gold futures are used to uh, manipulate prices, but I've arrived at um, uh, as as you can see in the fiat standard, I've arrived at the conclusion that actually what I think is responsible for the manipulation of gold. I mean, it's not manipulation; it's just it, it, it's the fact that they ban it from trading. That's really what it's all about. They. Um, you shut down the ability of gold to move across borders, and then you shut down gold's monetary role. And so people can't use gold as their store of value, and then that just prevents the price from appreciating significantly. And then what happens in the future market then is a consequence of that. So the fact that in the futures market you can end up with um, – I guess I'll put it this way. Even if it is true that there are um, – there are far more futures than there are physical gold, uh, than there is physical gold out there. Uh, 
I don't think that's uh, that's not that isn't to say that it is the futures that are manipulating gold. I think it's the fact that you can't use gold for settlement that is manipulating gold. That's uh, or that that is preventing it from appreciating and preventing it from uh, having a monetary role. That's the way that I would see it. The other, the other thing that I've gotten in the last reading here is I'm finally starting to understand what you and Michael Saylor are talking about. Um, you have some differences, but when you talk about, for example, your comment when somebody says there will be no bond market with Bitcoin, and your answer is yes. <laughs> there won't uh, I'm finally starting to understand the mechanics behind that in reading the last few chapters here it's it's really uh, it's hard very hard for a western thinking person to get their head wrapped around no debt it, it just it takes a real mental effort anyway yeah, I think, you know, you've just given me an inspiration. I think I want to turn things around. You know, we've spent, as gold bugs and Bitcoiners, we've spent decades being told you can't eat Bitcoin, you can't eat gold. I think it's time to repurpose this and tell people, well, you can't eat bonds. So what do you care if there's not going to be a bond market? <laughs> uh, safe. And Nathan, I might be able to add something about the, the Bitcoin ETF. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just literally gone down the rabbit hole and looked at uh, here's some of the papers I've been looking at of U.S. regulations and why they listed a, a futures ETF rather than a spot. And it, it basically comes down to Gary Gensler, the Securities Exchange Commission regulator. Mm-hmm. He uh, does not have a clear line of sight, does not have an ability to regulate spot Bitcoin. So he cannot give investor protection with respect to insider trading market manipulation, fraud, you know, fake prints, all that type of stuff. However, with respect to the futures market, the CME futures contract is a regulated uh, market, and they use a special uh, benchmark index called the CRR index to prevent fraud, manipulation, those types of things. So since he will not approve a spot Bitcoin ETF until he gets to regulate spot Bitcoin exchanges, and that'll happen probably next year. Um, if you read the president's uh, working group paper on um, uh, regulation of the uh, Bitcoin market, um, he wants to get congressional legislation to be able to regulate spot Bitcoin. Until then, he will not, I guarantee, he will not approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. And that's why he listed the futures-based ETF. And I agree with uh Nathan, that it is not a perfect substitute because the Bitcoin futures uh, trades in a contango market, uh, meaning that the forward futures prices are more expensive than the nearby futures. And that roll rate and having to constantly at every futures expiration, what was that? Having to sell um, futures and repurchase them further out is leading to tracking errors. Oh, they're right now at about $600 a roll, about 8 to 10% tracking error per year. And that's not including the fees of the uh, Bitcoin ETF. 
but once he gets a handle on it, once he's able to treat Coinbase and Gemini and all of the spot Bitcoin exchanges similar to the New York Stock Exchange and similar to the CME group, then, then he will approve a Bitcoin ETF. But I don't think until then. But isn't, uh, I mean, isn't the, the problem here that the majority of Bitcoin trading takes place outside the U.S., I think? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, but um, the products that they listed, B BTIO, and there's been several others. I think Vanek listed one yesterday, and Valkyrie is another. They listed it. Those products they listed in, on, on U.S. Uh, exchanges, and they'd be primarily accessed by U.S. customers and, and, and governed by U.S. regulation. Um, and, but I will also point out that it will apply, and it's already, they're attacking Binance, I think, is getting hit. Um, a lot of foreign exchanges are getting hit with regulatory actions as well for offering products to U.S. Um, citizens. Oh, there's a huge one. What is it? Bit? I don't know the exchange now. Is it BitMEX? What was the, they just, they hammered these guys with the huge like $100 million fine. It was a Hong Kong company traded. Yeah, BitMEX. BitMEX based in the Seychelles. Um, yeah, they were, that got hammered too. Their, their main crime was basically offering the product to, to U.S. customers, uh, basically an un, unregulated exchange. Um, they also offered derivatives too, which then brought Body Futures Trading Commission in, and the, the bottom line is the U.S. regulatory structure is incomplete with respect to Bitcoin. Two main areas, spot Bitcoin exchanges, they cannot give the same investor protections that the New York Stock Exchange does and the CME group in terms of you know, market manipulation, insider trading, fraud, investment protection, mm -hmm. anti those that list of goodies. Uh, and then also with stable coins, they're afraid of it as being an equivalent of a money market that could be run. And if those stable coins have deposits in U.S. financial institutions, it could cause a contagion event. So they yeah. want to rip, they need Congress to act on that too. They they don't have a clear line of sight on that. They don't have regulatory. Yeah, I mean, I in, in my mind, 
I would have said that I, I, I would have expected them to shut down. Uh, I'm surprised that uh, the uh, stable coins have survived this long. I would have expected them to have shut them down earlier. And I'm, I'm no expert on securities law, but listening to Gary Gensler and listening to Michael Saylor talk about it is making me convinced that uh, basically every digital currency other than Bitcoin is pretty much uh, security. I mean, uh, the, the whole premise is that we're going to build a platform where this thing is going to be needed. And then if you buy this token today, it's going to profit. It's going to be a profitable thing for you to do in the, the future because you can use it for uh, trading. Well, that simply makes pretty much every altcoin a security. I mean, the only one that was not a security was Bitcoin because there was never any, it was, it's very clear. You look at all the material, all the propaganda, uh, sorry, not propaganda, all the, um, all the advertisement that was done for Bitcoin, which was essentially a bunch of emails on a mailing list. It was, Hey, you know, there's this piece of software where we're going to, um, introduce this game where this, this commodity in this game. And you can come and you can mine it by using your computer and then you can get some and that's it. And there was no idea that if you get some, there will be a profit um, and you'll make more money from it. So, uh, which, you know, that's the case with the altcoins that, you know, people will use this platform for this thing and that and then you you will accrue benefits from it. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Um, James has a question. James, you want to go ahead? Yeah, Savadine. Um, I just finished the Bitcoin standard. I'm a total rookie, so I'm going to expose my lack of knowledge with these questions. But um, no problem. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm I decided to join your website. Uh, here's my question: uh, Getting I have not got started with Bitcoin yet, but I do have an account with OKCoin. My my, and I'm ordering a wallet. However, who? How do I get a private key? How does that happen? Um, when you uh, when you can generate the private key with the wallet. Oh, so, you can. Uh, yeah, that's what happens. And I think one of the most mind blowing things about Bitcoin is to realize that uh, to, to understand how private keys work. It's um, it's I, I guess a good way of thinking about it is that. Up there in the cloud, if you want to imagine the Bitcoin exists in the cloud, um, mm-hmm. there there are uh, quadrillions of quadrillions of quadrillions of quadrillions of digital safes out there where you can store uh, money. Mm-hmm. And they're all out in the open, but there's, there's just so many of them that all you need to do is to just stake one of them, you know, find one. And find the number for one of them, find the private key for one of them, and then you get the public key, which is the address. And then, in a sense, it's almost like it's hiding in plain sight, that the the addresses are all already there. All the Bitcoin addresses already exist. All that happens is that once you've generated that number, and there are different ways of generating it, uh, rolling dice or um, going through different letter combinations, um, to, to, to arrive at different phrases which you can use to generate it. But once you've arrived at uh, that number, then that safe is uh, yours and you can receive money to it. But as, And anybody can see the public address that you have for it. You can share it with people. They can send you money. But nobody can find the private key for it. So 
effectively the safes are all there the private keys are all there you just need to stake a claim to one but the odds of you um, staking a claim to one that's already been taken because there's so many of them it's um, the odds of hitting the same one twice is um, I, I mean I remember the metaphor for it imagine if every uh, grain of sand on Earth was um, was a planet the size of the Earth, and each one of these had as many grains of sand on it as Earth, and then pick one. You know, what are the yeah. odds that you could pick the same one? Right. Uh, that you could pick the same one that somebody else picked. It's like winning a thousand lotteries in a row or something like that. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's 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 on this order. So. Yeah, you just need to do enough math to figure out the numbers for a safe that is yours, and then uh, you have your private key. And then you can do it, um, you know, with a hardware wallet or with a paper wallet or um, uh, all kinds of different uh, software. Great, thank you. And I, I am getting ready to order a, a wallet. My So can I actually... I have an account on OK Coin. Can I start buying Bitcoin there, and then, then it becomes then I can put it on my wallet. Is that how that? So I could bu start buying now before I have a wallet. Yeah, you can keep the money with OK Coin. Yeah, uh, with, with an exchange, you you can keep the money there, um, and it's it's but it's important to understand the risks and the trade offs that are involved. Yeah. So if they go bankrupt then uh, your coins are compromised. If they uh, get attacked, your coins are compromised. Mm -hmm. But uh, now there's a common uh, theme that many people will tell you that you know self-custody is difficult. Setting up your own wallet is difficult. It's complicated. You can mess it up. You could lose your coins. Um, and, and, and there's the idea that if you just leave them with the exchange, well, the exchange is professional. They know their security better than you do. There is some truth to that, but I think the angle that's missing here is that uh, maybe the exchange is much better at maintaining their uh, their, their uh, security than you, but you still need to maintain the security of your own account on the exchange. And so you can get hacked yourself. This is the thing. So it's I I recommend that you take your custody of your coins because there's no escaping this responsibility. One way or the other, you're going to have to be responsible for it. So either you're going to take responsibility and put your coins on your own hardware wallet and secure that, or you're taking responsibility by putting your coins on an exchange, and then you're taking the responsibility of securing that exchange. And then if somebody can get into your email, if somebody can take your phone and get into your email, if somebody can, and, and this is the most common way in which they hack exchange accounts, uh, if you set up two-factor authentication, with your SIM card. That's a glaring security hole. And a lot of people have lost a lot of Bitcoin with that because, uh, and, and this is this is where, you know, it doesn't really matter how good the security of the exchange is. If somebody can go to your SIM card company and pretend to be you, and they just know a couple of details about you to convince the security, uh, uh, to convince the people at the company mm -hmm. that they are you, they'll get a new SIM card and they'll be wow. able to activate a phone line activate a phone line in your name and then they can log into your exchange account and have the SMS verification sent to their SIM card and then they can enter <laughs> the account. So uh, yeah, it's uh, securing your exchange account is 
no less sophisticated than securing your own uh, hardware wallet. So I think it's it makes sense to just. Um, uh, well, I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't like to give people a lot of um, uh, uh, you know real advice because it's this is always. What I'll tell you is to read more about it and understand the different trade-offs and the different risks because every, every, everything that you do has an angle of attack. And so you need to think of which angle of attack is the one that is uh, that you feel more comfortable handling. That's the key thing in my mind. Thank, thank you so much. And does, does running a node give you any extra security? Um, it gives you security... I mean, not so much in terms of securing your private keys in that, uh, like, if the, the the issue of the security of the private keys is more of a physical uh, thing in that if some somebody could take away your physical keys, if you have them stored, they could steal the physical key and then your node isn't going to help. It's not like the node can uh, help in that regard. But it can help in... Uh, and the, you know, it, it helps you verify the, the, the veracity of the uh, transactions that are taking place. So, you know, it's uh, like if, if, if you're getting a transaction, if you want to know that that transaction has landed in your address, um, the safest way of finding out that has happened is through a node. Thank you. Thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate that. That clarifies a couple of questions and, uh, and thanks for your book. Uh, it, it really uh, laid out the, the, the whole mechanism of Bitcoin so well, I thought. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Who's got more questions? Hey, sorry. This is Stefano. I don't really have Stefano. a question. Just have a comment. Yesterday, I listened to the Jordan Peterson podcast together with my mm -hmm. wife. And I also listened to the launch of the Fiat Standard, most of it, also with my mm -hmm. wife. And I think she's getting orange peeled, which is great. She, <laughs> after, the, after the meeting, she asked me, so why don't we buy more Bitcoins? I said, yes, <laughs> that's great. I'm in the has process of trying to do that. <laughs> has she started thinking about selling extra furniture in the house yet? <laughs> <laughs> not, not at that level, but, but it was a big step forward. Keep giving her podcasts until she uh, starts uh, getting rid of furniture. Then you know she's arrived. <laughs> and call me in the morning. Yes. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Safe. Safe Yep. Safe I'm just curious. Have you ever read uh, David Graeber's book, Debt? Um, no, I haven't read it, and I don't really plan on doing it. Um, yeah. I... I get the idea. I've had. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I. You shouldn't really judge a book without reading it. But when the person identifies as a Marxist, there's no way to get me to read it. So, <laughs> uh, it's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. But yeah, the whole notion that money is debt and debt is money, I think, is ridiculous. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's Marxist sleight of hand of the highest uh, order. And um, it's central banker propaganda. It's uh, oh, Marxist central right. banking propaganda. It's the idea that, uh, well, money is always going destined to be debt. And so it's going to have to be debt. So the choice is either we let evil capitalists be the ones who control the debt and the money, or we have democratic processes that control it. But that's ridiculous. And the central argument on which he builds it is completely idiotic. Um, 
so like there's a lot of anthropology and a lot of stories that uh, can captivate people but really the central economic argument uh, there is just completely ridiculous it's the idea that uh, we don't have a record of barter existing in a society therefore right. the idea that money is debt is ridiculous the idea that money came from barter is ridiculous and that's that's ridiculous because we're not going to have a society that's built on barter. If a society lives on barter, that is not going to be a society that is capable of leaving records behind. You know, that's an extremely, extremely, extremely primitive society. And the entire point of uh, why barter disappears and why trade uh, in a money emerges is precisely because uh, of the calculation problem. You know, it's uh, barter is feasible between people who um, have intimate uh, familiarity with one another, between members of the same family, between people who live in a small tribe with one another. If you live in a little island with 100 people, everybody knows everybody, you're going to spend all of the rest of your life on this island with everybody there, then yeah, uh, bartering and debt um, can in fact uh, function in, in that setting in that uh, you're not going anywhere, they're not going anywhere. And so you can trade with one another and you can exchange money with one another and you can both remain, um, uh, you know, you, you both can keep tabs with one another. There's, there's only a few people in town and it's not very difficult to keep a running tab with everybody else. Um, but when you live in a society that starts growing, when you are not on an island, but when you know you say live in a small little town and then you start traveling to the town next door and you trade with the people in the town next door, well, you don't want to keep a scorecard with somebody who's a stranger whom you're only yeah. going to see maybe once a year. You'd like to settle the debt. You know, you want to sell them something and you want to take something and you want it to be something that is a final settlement of the debt. And so beyond, uh, so really his notion that barter doesn't exist is ridiculous because we still see barter existing today. You know, we, you've, you've probably bartered at some point with somebody, yeah. you know, you had a, um, uh, 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 you know, a, a piece of clothing that didn't fit you and so you gave it to somebody and they gave you a pen in exchange or whatever it probably has happened to some of us uh, to most of us at some point in our lives but it doesn't happen precisely because of the problems of barter if we lived in an economy of 10 people with 10 goods then yeah we could keep track of these goods and we could barter with them but as we go beyond that number probably beyond 100 probably beyond 100 Dunbar's number as the scope as the number of people that you trade with grows beyond that number it's inevitable that you don't want to keep a scorecard you just want to exchange and you want final settlement of the good and in this case you know debt is very crappy money it's debt starts becoming very crappy money because let's say i want to sell you i want to give you my um say apples today and uh, you were promising me that you're going to give me grains uh, in grain harvest season which is let's say in three months so now over those three months, I don't have the I don't have my apples, and I didn't enjoy my apples, and I don't have the ability to use the wealth, the, the value of those apples. I, if I'd sold it for a, something like a money, if I'd sold it for a medium of exchange, that's wealth that I have with me, and that at any point in time I could sell it or exchange it with somebody else, and um, uh, you know 
meet my needs. So let's say I break a leg and I need to go to the local witch doctor to give me um, a remedy to fix my uh, broken leg. I can't tell them, well, this guy I know in the town next door has promised that they're going to give me grains when it's grain season, and I'll give you half of that promise if you fix my leg. He doesn't know me, he doesn't want to trust me, and he doesn't know how much I know you and how much I trust you. And so there's a very heavy discount attached to that uh, promise. So I see there's a chart of the human body behind you, so I presume you're a doctor. Yes. So so if I came to you and I told you, you know, here's $100 in cash, would you rather take that to fix my leg or would you rather take a promise that, you know, in three months' time, some guy I know is going to give you $100 worth of grain? What do you prefer? Cash. Cash, obviously. Everybody in the world prefers cash. That's really the whole point of money. So uh, you can use that promise as money. There's nothing, I mean, it's, this is the extremely idiotic and childish thing about Graeber's idea. Like he says, well, we can use this thing as money, therefore all debt is money at all times. No, you can use it as money, but it has a severely compromised saleability and it becomes heavily discounted. So the concept of saleability, which I discuss in the Bitcoin standard and in the fiat standard, I think is key to understanding this. The fact that this is reliant on me um, making good on that promise and on the grain seller making good on that promise makes you want to discount it. You might accept the grains in exchange of it, but if I told you you'll get $300 worth of grains, then it might become tempting. So there's a very heavy discount attached to my credit worthiness, my trustworthiness, worthiness, and the other guy's trustworthiness. And you know the harvest season and whether there's going to be a locust or whether there's going to be uh, flooding that kills all of the crops. So all of these things that can happen that can um, mean that you end up not getting paid beyond my control, plus my own honesty, plus the other guy's honesty, all of that adds a heavy discount onto this promise. So just because he brings up examples where people have used promises to uh, settle, who have used promises to exchange goods for them, does not mean that the promise of something is as good as the money. The money is much better. And that's, um, and that's economic reality, and that's something that Marxists just can't understand, because what they don't get is that it's not about them agreeing to this or not, and them just putting their fingers in their ears and refusing to think about economic concepts because their evil capitalist concepts does not make them go away. This is the reality. And people who end up accepting a lot of debt uh, as money will not do as well as people who take uh, cash. So if you decide, if, if, if you happen to read Graeber and then you decide, yep, debt is money and money is debt, and I'm going to take $100 worth of grain next harvest season instead of $100 in cash today, you're going to get wrecked <laughs> one way or the yeah. other. You know, well, I'm going to renege on the promise or the other guy is going to renege on his promise to me or uh, this is, the harvest season is going to be bad. So out of every $1 million that you accept in payment, you'll, in, in this kind of uh, um, uh, debt receipt, you're going to maybe make half a million, whereas the other doctor who accepts cash only is going to make the full $1 million. So 
that's really the, the the ultimate problem which is that he uses this kind of anthropological slight of hand where he says we've never seen a society that runs on pure barter which is of course the whole point of why we can't have a society on barter that's why we have money because money is what allows for the division of labor and then he jumps to say and then he also brings up examples of people using um, debt liabilities as money and then he uh, concludes that uh, therefore, uh, there is no such thing. Uh, there is no difference between money and, and uh, debt, and money and debt are perfectly interchangeable. And therefore, and this is of course, you know, the the, the Keynesian, the Marxist uh, punchline. Therefore, central banks are just a natural uh, extension of the um, nature of money, which is that money is debt, and central banks are our best ability to democratize and bring under uh, the control of the people the natural process of money being debt. Well, I just started listening to this on, on Audible. <clears throat> I'm a, it's a 17-hour book, and I'm two hours in, and I would think you have read it several times just from your discussion of it. So uh, I won't waste any more time on it. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Now, I've read a bunch of critiques of him. I've read uh, there's a good critique by Robert Murphy and another one by George Selgin who uh, tackle his ideas. Uh, I think the one by Murphy is probably more devastating. So I'd recommend checking these out. Um, thank you. We'll save you 17 hours. All right, all right. Thanks so much. I'll spend that time getting my Bitcoin account set up. A much better use of your time. <laughs> thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks. Lyric, hi, nice to see you here. Um, uh, I'm working on an article right now on energy and the cost of energy and you know how things are changing. I'm wondering how you see right now the higher cost of energy relating to Bitcoin, because it is an energy standard, in fact. Um, and that's I think that's what makes it interesting and durable as well. Um, and, you know, there are people who think now that because of climate change activism and so forth, that we're going to be leaving a petroleum standard and, you know, the world's going to change and become completely electrified. How do you think these changes in the energy world um, relate to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, or is there no connection whatsoever? Uh, first of all, um, so we've done a whole bunch of episodes uh, in this podcast on energy, and there's a huge chapter, there's two chapters on this uh, question in uh, the Fiat Standard, my forthcoming book. Uh, so I um, uh, I get into it in depth. Um, obviously, I'm not going to be able to um, recapitulate the whole thing for... Um, but I'll, I'll just try and um, go with a few main ideas. First of all, when we say that the world's moving away from fossil fuels to be electrified, I think this is just, uh, uh, this makes no sense. The majority of electricity in the world is produced from fossil fuels. Uh, electricity is produced from fossil fuels. And the idea that we can have electricity without fossil fuels is... Um, I agree with is, you. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. We can't have electricity. We can't have grids built on wind and solar. This is just ridiculous. This is insane. It's, um, it, it, it's you trying to build a modern industrial society based on, uh, 
pre-modern, pre-industrial uh, energy sources. So wind and solar are intermittent. They are not there 24-7 and they cannot meet our demand. They can't be scaled up and down like natural gas and oil and uh, coal can. So you put more coal into the coal plant and it makes more energy. So you know when to make more energy and you can dial it up and down. But the, you can't control the wind and you can't control the sun. And the sun is out roughly half the year, more than half the year because there's clouds and dust that stop solar panels from working. And the wind is out for significant periods. And the wind doesn't blow when you need it the most, usually. Um, you know, when there's a snowstorm, after the snowstorm, it's freezing cold, but there's no wind and everybody wants heating, as happened in Texas. So there's um, the, the idea that we can build grids based on intermittent energy sources is just uh, I call fiat thermodynamics in the fiat standard. It's just this idea of um, it's it, it's like the child who wants to go to Disneyland but doesn't want to get into the car that wants to take them to Disneyland. And it's just, you know, no, I want to go to Disneyland. I don't want to go to the car. If you want to go to Disneyland, your best bet is to get into the car until you can show us a working teleportation machine. Shut up and get into the car. And this is the case with wind and solar. It's, it's, it's like... The, dealing with children who are thinking that they can just overrule thermodynamic reality by um, imposing uh, their demands and, you know, just having government pass a law. This is fiat energy, fiat fuels, fiat thermodynamics. You know, if the government passes a law that taxes uh, coal, gas, and uh, um, oil and subsidizes solar and wind, then suddenly solar and wind will become workable sources for the grid. So that can't happen. So this is fiction, I think. And I think what's going to happen, and this is the theme that I keep repeating in the podcast and in the fiat standard, is we're, get, we're going to enter a real energy crisis. These um, insane ideas of let's use solar and wind, um, you know, they're taking out uh, the reliable infrastructure which has built our modern world, which has given us the ability to survive winters effortlessly and to travel around. They're destroying this critical infrastructure, which has taken centuries to build with this insane uh, delusional idea that we can replace it immediately by just uh, building better uh, by you know once we take it out then we'll have to build a replacement and i tweeted about this once it's exactly like saying you know the sooner we cut off your legs the faster you'll grow wings well you can't grow wings humans don't grow wings and the humans can't make energy from solar and wind and that's just not gonna ever change they're always going to remain intermittent and it's not going to be workable. So we can cut off people's legs, but we can't make them grow wind. So I think we're now entering the stage where we're beginning to chop off people's legs. And um, we're going to have a few years of um, all these uh, um, smart asses being surprised that uh, wings don't grow, you know. Surprisingly, you know, the grid failed when it was built on uh, wind and solar. And um, we're going to get money more instances similar to what has been happening in California and Texas in terms of grid failure. Energy prices are going to go up. Poor people are going to suffer. A lot more people, incidentally, die from cold than from heat. This is one of the very blatant and obvious uh, facts which the uh, climate hysterics like to avoid, but far more people all over the world die from cold than in the heat. You know, in the heat, now you can if if you don't move around and if you lay if you lay around in the shade, you can generally make it. You can survive. But in the cold, you know, if you're cold, if you can't keep your house warm, 
you can very easily die. It's it, it's very difficult. And of course, we have billions of people who live in places that would not be habitable were it not for heavy energy consumption. You know, um, most of Northern Europe and North America and uh, North Asia, the reason it is habitable for the large numbers of people that live in it today is because of the use of modern energy sources. We'll take that away and then they're back to chopping wood to survive and there's just not that much capacity for growing enough wood to keep everybody there warm. So it's going to be catastrophic. Um, um, it's not, I, there's this silly idea that you know we can have these the Star Wars or Star Trek kind of energy system where everything, you know, just click a button and everything is electrified. And it's, it's, it's like the fiction of uh, electric cars that we can, uh, that, you know, electric cars don't run on fossil fuels. They run on electricity. And that's ridiculous because the electricity they get is from the grid. And that's why I call electric cars external combustion engines. They just perform the combustion externally and then uh, send the electricity to the car. Um, now, so there's not going to be a transformation in the energy sector. If there is going to be a transformation, what would have happened in the last 50 years if the world wasn't insanely going down the path of trying to get rid of our most reliable technologies, which is hydrocarbon, what should have happened, the kind of energy transformation that should have happened is a move away from the use of oil and coal for energy generation, uh, for sorry, for electricity, toward the use of gas and nuclear. This is the energy transition that the world would have needed, but this is being forestalled by the insane uh, and really downright criminal <clears throat> and genocidal, honestly, and, and this is the topic of discussion of the last week, really truly genocidal move toward uh, pushing these unreliable, highly expensive resources on the world. If the world wasn't wasting so much resources on wind and solar, <clears throat> and all these other uh, feel-good <coughs> nonsense technologies, we'd have a lot more nuclear and a lot more gas, and that's that would be good. Um, but if we keep moving away from that, we're just going to end up with a lot more... Uh, with a lot more uh, devastation and poverty. Um, so now, how it affects Bitcoin? The short answer is that it doesn't, because Bitcoin is, um, and again, it's, this is discussed in depth in the uh, Bitcoin stand, in, in the fiat standard. Bitcoin uh, survives almost entirely on cheap electricity. Um, it, it's not possible for anybody to mine Bitcoin at high electricity prices profitably. So if you're um, basically nobody is mining Bitcoin on the regular grid prices that we see in most of the world. In most of the world, the grid prices are much higher than um, what is profitable on Bitcoin. And the reason for that is that Bitcoin is, um, you know, Bitcoin has the difficulty adjustment, which is constantly bringing down the price of electricity, um, constantly um, bringing down the electricity that is profitable. People who are uh, able to mine Bitcoin at low prices can stay on the network profitably. But then if let's say you're mining at a price of 10 cents and you're making a profit, well, it's very easy for a lot of people to get electricity at 10 cents. And then that increases the difficulty of mining because of the difficulty adjustment. So mining becomes less profitable for everybody. 
And because there's a lot of people on Tencent, eventually those people get kicked off the network. So in general, from what I've seen, talking to people in the Bitcoin mining industry, it seems to me that, you know, five cents per kilowatt hour, six cents per kilowatt hour is the price that you need if you want to mine uh, profitably, reliably. And if you want to mine at scale, that's the thing that like you, if you're going to get in, if you're going to invest a serious uh, magnitude of uh, money into mining, it's going to be in the five, six cent per kilowatt hour range. Now, the average grid price of electricity is about 14 cents per kilowatt hour around the world. So um, all of this destruction of the grid is going to make electricity much more expensive on the grid. But it's not going to really affect Bitcoin mining because Bitcoin mining is going to continue to be done on sources of energy that are stranded away from grids. Basically, Bitcoin mining eats all the electricity that is not easy to connect to the grid because all the electricity that can be connected to grids I mean, not all, so, you know, there are places that are, let's say there's a big giant uh, hydroelectric plant or a big giant uh, nuclear plant, and it's, um, it's not easy to take its output and sell it elsewhere. In these places, you'll get very cheap electricity. You could mine Bitcoin there, but um, that's generally not the case with hydrocarbon because there's a continuous running cost to hydrocarbon plants. So... Uh, we're going to continue to see mining Bitcoin being done in isolated and uh, stranded energy sources. And this is basically beyond the reach of the barbarians and the primitives who want to take us back to the pre-industrial age. Um, so methane flaring and abandoned oil fields, abandoned gas fields, all of these things, you can uh, mine them quite effectively because, um, you know, uh, these th these places are stranded. And all you need is just take a bunch of Bitcoin miners there and then connect them to the internet. So, um, and then the good news is, while the insane cult of um, uh, carbon hysterics is destroying grids and destroying cheap and reliable energy all over the world in favor of primitive technologies, Bitcoin is basically subsidizing cheap, reliable energy everywhere in the world and giving everybody who has cheap, reliable energy a way of monetizing it. And so I think the long-term effect of that is that these stranded resources are going to be developed further and further and there will be more capital accumulation and they'll be more and more productive over time. And then um, that, that, that that's basically, um, you know, you know the, Capital accumulation, whenever it happens, leads to improvement in productivity. And so more capital being invested in mining and producing cheap electricity is going to lead to more and more production of cheap electricity. It's And, and, the, and the kind of poetic justice of it is that Bitcoin is um, demonetizing government money and taking away seniorage from governments and is t directing that seniorage toward... Uh, is directing that seniorage toward uh, the energy structures that are being destroyed by these very same governments. It's beautiful. It brings a tear to my eyes every time I think Thank about you. it. Thank you. I'd love to do a podcast with you on this um, and about your new book too and the future for EconView. Thank you, Saifedean. Really yes. great answer. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you feel free to um, copy this and um, put it on your podcast. Thank you. I will. Cheers. All right, Chakti.
Uh, hello again, Seth. Um, really enjoyed the discussion. I just wanted to add um, uh, to the point that you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier when, when the other gentleman mentioned that his wife was getting orange pilled recently and you, you said, is he ready to sell the couch yet? And um, uh, I'm actually going through something similar right now. Um, and I, I just wanted to share this, um, this uh, period that I'm going through with, with the group uh, because I, I think some people might be able to relate or some people might not be there yet. But uh, I, I live in Dubai and I've lived here for about five, six years and I travel to play poker. I'm a professional poker player. And um, uh, I have actually decided in the last three months to uh, give up my house here and move back to India uh, because my expenditure would go down by basically... 10 times if I, if I, if I do that. And I am all in on crypto now after being studying for the last one year. And um, I'm, I'm just thinking like, I'm, I'm thinking different. I've always lived life large and I've always liked to spend money and, and so on. But since the time I've understood really uh, what Bitcoin is and how it's changing um, our entire system, it's, it's almost been like a, uh, like a psychedelic trip and I just want to you know not spend money anymore because in my head I'm just spending 10 20 times more than what I'm spending in in present day so uh, like how how do you deal with uh, uh, with 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 you know spending and and I know all the bitcoiners live frugally but uh, like what was your journey like in in this could you talk a little bit about that um, I think the, um, the the kind of long-term impact of this is that, uh, you, I mean, uh, you can't just uh, keep living frugally forever. Eventually, you, after all, your time preference isn't zero and you only live once. And so you want to consume, you want to enjoy the good things that life offers. So what happens is that um, I mean, obviously, we, we make a lot of jokes about selling all of your chairs, but, you know, I make this joke sitting on a chair myself right now, as you may notice. Um, so, and I will confess it's not the only chair in my house. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you you have to live. And, then you, and I think, uh, you know, you want to... You, you do want to enjoy the good things in life. And what happens with Bitcoin... The reason it's such a transformative uh, technology to use is that you still make these choices. There's no escaping making the choices and you still need to consume, you still need to eat, you still need a roof over your head. But now everything has to be good enough to justify getting rid of money that's going to appreciate into the future. Whereas when you were living in fiat, it had to be good enough to be better than you know, given that you would expect that if you just held on to the money, you would have, say, let's say, 5% loss in purchasing power every year or 2% loss in, or 10% loss. So, you you know, the chair that you buy or the house that you buy or the experience that you buy had to be better than um, holding on to the money and having 98% of that value next year. So it was a pretty low bar to clear. That's why it was very easy to spend a lot of money because... Next year, you expect the $100 that you have to be worth $97. And so 
um, your choice is between having the $100, you know, uh, having $97 tomorrow or buying the chair today. So the chair had to be $98 worth in order to buy it. But now when you expect that the chair is going to be worth, let's say, uh, the, the, the 100 bucks are going to be worth 120 next year, it has to be a pretty good chair for you to be, it, it had to be extremely valuable for you. So you're not just going to buy any chair, you're going to buy a chair that you really need, that you really value, that you value more than having $120 next year. Now the example of the chair is um, a little bit of a simplistic one, but I think the, uh, the overall theme is that um, what ends up happening is that you start valuing your time much, much, much more. And then you start valuing all of your decisions with a lot more uh, thought. And then you start demanding excellence in everything that you do. Uh, it's, you know, you, you want excellence in any book that you read and you want excellence in any house that you buy. You want excellence in your relationships, in your friendships. You want to spend time with people that um, are worth uh, spending the time with. And that's, that's really the, the, the quantum leap that Bitcoin does to people. This is something that I've noticed and I think uh, it's something that many of my readers continue to tell me all the time because they've, um, because my book helped them understand what was going on. My book kind of articulated this process, which is once the money starts rising, you know, suddenly you're not just interested in going out and getting drunk with your buddies every week of every night week, every week night, because, well, you know, that's expensive and I'm going to have a hangover. You start thinking about the tomorrow. Just yesterday or two days ago, somebody tweeted that uh, he read the Bitcoin standard in June 2019. And then he explained time preference to his wife and she decided to stop drinking uh, and to put all of her drinking money into Bitcoin instead. And now she seems to be a, she, she seems to have been a pretty uh, decent drinker. Now she's uh, accumulated almost one full Bitcoin from not drinking. So she's been sober for two years and uh, almost two years and a half now. And she's accumulated a whole Bitcoin from that. Um, so immediately, once you start thinking about the future more, you start demanding much more of yourself and of um, and, and taking better decisions. And this is, um, I mean, in my case, the way that I think about it is that um, everything that I do has to be worth it. And that's really, I think it, 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 it reflects into you having a much better life in every way because you're not going to invest in something unless it's... Um, really really worth it and so uh, you know i've i got married uh, as soon as i got into bitcoin and i'd have a lot more bitcoin today if i hadn't gotten married and um, if i didn't have a family and if i didn't spend all this incredible money um, on you know kids and diapers and all of that stuff over the years but and I spent that money knowing that that money was going to appreciate enormously. And um, you know, I happened to, like, I got married at the time when I first got into Bitcoin, and I knew that the money would appreciate. But I still spent a lot of money uh, on getting married and on having kids. Um, and I don't regret it because I, um, you know, I 
it, it was worth it. You know, it was um, it, it, even knowing that the money was appreciating. I believed that having this family and having those children was worth it. And so, you know, the the stakes that I was feeding my kids years ago. I knew that these were going to be worth a lot more money in a few years and I could save a lot of money by feeding them uh, formula and uh, soy and uh, industrial waste. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I believe it is worth it. And I think, you know, it, 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 it makes you really value. Um, yeah, it, you know, I think it makes me really feel like these kids are pretty special because, you know, <laughs> I sacrificed some serious Satoshis in order to uh, feed them and uh, get them to where they are right now. So, yeah, you're still going to spend. Time preference is never going to be zero. It's just that now you're going to raise the quality of everything that you spend money on. And I've noticed that on a personal level, and I've seen it with many, many others. Like, yeah, you stop spending money on stupid things that don't matter. And you start only spending money on things that um, you, you know that five years down the line, you're going to look at it and say, yeah, this would have cost me this much. Um, this, you know, I could have had this many Bitcoin if I didn't buy this th thing. And you still think, yep, I'd rather have this thing than not have, uh, than have all of these Bitcoins. The only thing that I'd like to add, Seth, here is that um, I read the book, your your book, Bitcoin Standard, about a year ago. And um, at the after reading the book, I was overwhelmed and confused. And, you know, I, I didn't understand things fully. But then the more material I read, also Michael Saylor helped a lot when he broke down things in a very, very simple manner um, in, in so many different ways. So my aha moment came actually three, four months after reading the book. And then every, like all the pieces came together. So there might be a lot of people in this group right now that, that you know, think they, they understand Bitcoin. But if Bitcoin is not changing your life radically the way it has changed Seth's or the, day, the way I'm changing my life, you know, making big, huge changes, um, then, you know, you need to go deeper and understand it deeper. And, um, and yeah, that, that's, that's what I wanted to add. Thank you for everything, Seth. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to hear that. All right. Other questions? Just there we go. That's me there. <laughs> just just wanted to say um, I, I haven't. Uh, I've read your your Bitcoin Standard book. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been making differences in my life too. I haven't quite started with the Fiat Standard just yet, but I will do. And it's my first time joining one of your seminars, so I'm going to do my best to keep uh, you know touching base into uh, these type of uh, forums. It's very good stuff. Thank you. I'm glad. That. <laughs> That's all right. Thanks. Yes, sir. I want to hey, know. Daniel. I want to know. I want to know where everyone's come from today. This is crazy. <laughs> this is like 66 people. Uh, put it put in the chat, guys, where um, where you you picked up on on Soap's work. Was it the podcast with Peterson? Because uh, it's great to see so many people here and uh, asking all these questions. Brilliant. It's just snowballing. It's every everything is snowballing. It's the nature of Bitcoin. It's the nature of great articulation by Seth in his book, and uh, it's it's only going to get more and more and more. I'm not surprised. I'm I'm surprised that Seth is surprised. Safe. Is this the uh, is this is this the beginning of the bull? Is this it now? This this call? I don't know. We've had uh, well, we've had a lot of bulls. We've also had a lot of. Uh, 
a lot of false dawns. So, uh, um, who knows? Um, Martin is saying they got the email invite for the first time this morning. It's, well, it's my fault. It's my fault. I mistakenly sent the update for this seminar to the whole <laughs> mailing list, uh, newsletter email list. So, oh. it, 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 so I, I was also wondering where are all these people coming from, but it's very interesting and, you know, <laughs> so welcome oh, everybody. This is your taste of the seminars that we do every week. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well. Well, it's worked out fine. Uh, oh, yeah. So basically, the way it works is that Guerrilla if you subscribe to the membership, um, you get to access the website and the courses and the chapters. Um, but if you're subscribed to the membership plus, which costs uh, twice as much, then you get to join the seminars as well. Um, but yeah, so welcome, everybody. Um, Danny, you have a question? You have your hand up. You should have a question or a comment at least. Seth, I have something that I uh, often think about. I, I was wondering if you have uh, thoughts about this. Mm -hmm. um, the government, as it maintains and holds control over the currency, um, obviously, like in a way, has the most amount of control, right? Just Just by having control over the money. And as we move away from that, could there be like a negative, almost like a dangerous scenario in which one person could accumulate too much Bitcoin or too much energy in that sense and nobody could stop him, for example, like Alexander the Great kind of a kind of a scenario? Um, what do you mean exactly? Who's that someone like a, just holding so much Bitcoin? Like, for example, if, if today some company starts getting too much power, government tries to break it up uh, or tax him or, or you know, whatever. I mean, there, there's all, always um, measures taken in the world to make sure that no one person has too much power. But uh, with totally decentralized finance and decentralized money, energy, power, uh, there could be a scenario in which one person could just accumulate too much money or too much power. And then because the government can't confiscate it, essentially, and the person could even be anonymous, uh, he could fund things that are not necessarily good for humanity. So by by government not having control. Uh, like government, that, how, for instance. Government uh, entity. So, for example, in America, that would be the American government. And obviously, different governments have different kinds of yeah. policies. But the heads of governments keep changing. Uh, and that's why it's it's a different... For example, if Vladimir Putin, for example, uh, you know, was Satoshi Nakamoto. And, you know, like, I'm not saying he is. But I'm saying, like, that kind of a figure, if he accumulates too much power, for example, um, could, could that be a threat to... Um, I mean, I just think about these things. I'm not saying that this is just a theory in my head, but I'm just wondering if you've thought about it or if anyone else yeah, is thinking about I, it. Yeah, I definitely have thought about it. And I think the um, I, I, I kind of reject the premise of the question because the way that I see it is that the worst thing that rich people can do with their money is um, do something very, very evil and destructive to humanity. And that is set up a government, which is a monopoly on power. 
So um, the, the idea that government is out there to stop uh, uh, and break up monopolies and stop very rich people from um, doing harmful things, I think is extremely um, wrong-headed and uh, the reverse of reality. In reality, it is the government that is actually out there uh, making things terrible and helping the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And um, that's the way in which this uh, usually, the, I mean, that's the way in which things break down, basically. Um, so, like, you look at the world today, you look at the richest people in the world and how the recent COVID insanity helped them even get even richer and more powerful. So governments shut down small businesses all over the world. And the only, I mean, in the U.S. and Canada and many places, it's insane. You know, you, you had the little, uh, basically in Canada, I remember people some was saying, the only thing, you could do anything as long as you could, as long as you could, uh, as long as it was not a small business. You know, small businesses, nobody's going to lobby for them. Um, but big business can lobby. And so when the test is when survival and operation is dependent on the market, um, is dependent on uh, the government, then the decisions will always go in favor of the bigger, more powerful people who can just lobby and get the rules that they want. And um, that's how you get the more powerful monopolies. If it was down to the market, though, no matter how big you are, you can only get bigger by serving customers. That's it. You can't shut down your opposition. You can't pass regulation that hurts your opposition. And you can only get bigger by getting better at what you do. So um, for me, it's the exact opposite. It's, we are living in that world right now where rich, powerful people are able to do extremely horrific, destructive things. Let's just look at that sociopath, Bill Gates, and the insane things that he's done in the last uh, couple of years. You know, when he goes on TV and he says, we have to shut down uh, all uh, society, basically, we have to shut down schools and universities and um, uh, uh, sports and everything has to shut down. It's just He's just made the decision that all businesses in the world need to shut down and everybody needs to go online. And if your job can be done online, then good for you. If your job can't be done online, then, well, you know, wait 18 months and hopefully you don't get to starve. And then at the end of the 18 months, uh, we'll see what happens or, you know, maybe we don't. This sort of insanity wouldn't happen on a free market without governments. It's only government entities that allow these kind of sociopathic criminals to do these kinds of policies. This wouldn't happen. This guy wouldn't be getting on TV and telling us, and, and this is really, notice, this, this is the most pernicious aspect of it, which is that he's telling people what he thinks, what should happen. You know, he, It's not like he's saying, well... I suggest we should do this and I'd urge Parliament to vote for it or I suggest we have a referendum on this or I suggest that we do that or I think we should do this. No, it's just we have to shut down schools and we're... No, no, not even, sorry. It's not we have to shut down schools. It's we are going to shut down schools. He's just informing us of what's happening. Now, it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't get away with this kind of insanity without the power of government. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You can't shut down my business unless you have police come into my business, put a gun to my head and tell me, shut down this business or we're going to shoot you. That's how it works. This is the only way that this can happen. 
And the same is true for like monopolies and like uh, government and, and business monopolies. You know, the way that you get monopolies, and this is kind of the scam of antitrust. Antitrust is presented as this way in which we break down monopolies. But in reality, antitrust is the way that uh, uh, monopolies and oligopolies uh, survive. That's what it, that's what it is. Um, we need the government to decide uh, the structure of the market. And that means that the government entity that's going to decide the structure of the market is going to be captured by the biggest players in the market. And they're going to continue to wield that to prevent themselves from facing any competition. You see it over and over and over again. All right, who's got more questions? Karim? Uh, I have a comment. So I just want to... Um reflect on my experience i came across the bitcoin standard and honestly it changed the fundamental of understanding of money and what it is and uh, it has really impacted my life and my decision making and uh, the concept of time preference and uh, i just want to be thankful for that so thank you thank you sir glad to hear that that's it no more nothing else you want to add I, I'm also waiting on my copy of the fiat standard. I've already ran it through the website. I honestly would recommend anybody who wants to learn about the concept of money in a logical manner that they can understand and wrap their heads around. Just go to the website, read the books, do the courses, and you'll get all the knowledge. It's fabulous. Thank you, Saif Anjad. Thank you. Thank you, Karim. Glad to hear that. All right. Who else? Uh, excuse me. Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to raise my hand, so I'll do it. <laughs> okay. I just want to thank you for everything. Um, I'm very aligned with even your geopolitical uh, outlook on things, Bitcoin, of course. Um, I'm going to put this out as a, as a boomer. I just turned 66, and uh, I'm trying to accrue... Uh, some generational wealth for my family. <clears throat> I've got uh, 18 grandkids, three grown children. So I, I don't often hear you speak of uh, market cycles as far as, uh, and I was contemplating, I'm, I'm guessing you're a hodler, though you don't portray that too much right through until uh, maybe possibly Bitcoin can be used as a, you know, uh, unit of trade. But uh, as far as cycling out, do you think we are entering into a, a super cycle, a hyper Bitcoinization, or do you foresee us uh, going into another blow off top here where we'll probably retrace into the 50s where someone could, you know, possibly sell out at 130 or 200 and, uh, <clears throat> you know, reallocate with uh, additional Bitcoin? Do you have a do you have any comment on that or advice? Um, we've had several discussions of this uh, on the podcast before. I've discussed this with Michael Saylor in the podcast in which we hosted him. I've also discussed it uh, with Preston Pish um, in depth. And uh, we've discussed it in some of the uh, seminars where we didn't have guests. Uh, we've spoken about the stock to flow model. My general inclination is to think that, no, we're uh, we're not going to have the superpower cycle this time. I think we're still uh, we're still in the same kind of situation as before. I don't think much has changed. We're going to witness uh, we're going to witness a blow off top at some point. I still think we can see crashes, 
and um, I think the, the reason that I think this is the case is that um, basically I think of it in terms of the inflation that is in Bitcoin. Bitcoin, uh, when the price of Bitcoin rises, Bitcoin becomes more inflationary in real terms, not in terms of percentages. You know, the percentage of Bitcoin that's being produced remains fixed, but the uh, uh, market value of the new Bitcoin that is produced rises significantly. So when you get a uh, when you get the um, when the price of Bitcoin goes up tenfold, let's say, the value of the Bitcoin rewards that are being produced every day goes up also tenfold. And so for the price to stay constant, you need to have ten times as much new demand to buy up all the new coins. And so this is kind of in my mind, this is kind of the um, this is what puts the brakes on hyper bitcoinization breaking off which is kind of okay not it's not a bad thing because this is also what um you know this is this is what launches the rockets initially this is what launches the bull market we get the halving and so the price of the value of the new reward every day drops by half and that causes a supply squeeze um a supply shortage and then there's a supply and there's a price squeeze and the price shoots up and then, um, as the price shoots up, the uh, you know the the value goes up for the coins. But we still, you know, we get this uh, we get this situation where it becomes more inflationary, and then the price crashes. And then, uh, because it crashes again, um, it's it still ends up crashing to a level much higher than where it was before the halving. So I still think, you know, we've got at least another couple of halvings uh, of okay. this playing out. Okay. Because if you think of it this way, you know, last year, the price of Bitcoin was before the halving, before May 2020. Let's look at the one year before that. So May 2019 to May 2020, the price of Bitcoin averaged probably around $9,000 or so. And we had about 18 uh, 1,800 coins being produced each day. So 1,800 new coins times nine hundred times $9,000, that's around uh, $16 million worth of Bitcoin every day. So this is the amount of new demand. We were getting roughly on average about $16 million a day of new hodlers. And that's either new money coming in or existing hodlers choosing to hodl a larger amount. And that's... You know, that's not nothing. $16 million a day is uh, serious money. Now, look at it today. The price today is, let's say, around, or let's say, look, let's look at the year from May 20 uh, to um, May 2021. For that year, the price averaged, I would say, something in the range of 25000 perhaps. Uh, probably a little bit less. Um, probably about 20, let's say, 20, 25,000. Or let's even extending it to now, it might be about 30,000 because we spent most of that this year over 30,000. So the price was in that range, but we had 900 coins. So let's say $30,000 since then. And at 900 coins, that adds up to about 25, $27 million uh, a day of Bitcoin. So that's, wait, am I doing the math right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, $25, $30 million of Bitcoin a day. So we've kind of doubled marginal daily demand um, in the year after Bitcoin. 
if you focus on the last year now, ignoring the first five months after the halving, and just going from November 2020 to November 2021, then the average price is probably closer to 40. And so um, in that case, you know, 40 times 900 coins, that's about $35 million or so. So we've kind of uh, more than doubled the previous, uh, so it's close to, it's about two and a half. So that's, I think, reasonable. I I wouldn't be surprised if we can run significantly higher with the, throughout the cycle. I wouldn't, I, I think the stock to flow model is kind of uh, onto something when it suggests that we rise to 100,000 on average, because then we're talking about an increase from, in the previous cycle, it was about 16 million, 15 million. And now if we have 900 coins, at one, it's about 90 million. So we've gone up about fivefold. I think that's reasonable, you know, fivefold increase in daily demand. I think that's reasonable. But I don't think it's reasonable to expect us to hit $1 million in this cycle. Right, right. I don't see us hitting $1 million before 2025 because right. with 900 coins a day, $1 million Bitcoin is $900 million of Bitcoin uh, every day hitting the market in real terms, uh, in, in terms of market value. And that's just such a massive jump over what we had last year. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I don't see it happening. Right. But, um, you know, after we have the reward in 2024 and the new having brings the reward down to 24, to, um, uh, to 450 coins a day, well, then it doesn't sound as outlandish then, you know? Sure. 40, 450 coins a day times $1 million per coin, 450 million. Well, if we're at 50 right now, or if we get to, let's say, 100, then that's another, that's another 5x over the next four or five years. Not entirely unreasonable, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh -huh. with time, demand increases and the reward declines. And so the bar is set lower every time because of the halving. But I still don't think we're at the point where we can just, uh, you know, uh, just ignore the bar. There's still a bar right. to clear. Sure, sure. And let's say it does, I think, uh, plan B, uh, 130 maybe was this projection. Um, what's going to be the floor then? Would you say... Sort oh, of yeah. So the other, the, other, the, other, the other part of your question is whether it comes mm -hmm. to trading. And this is the thing, like, mm -hmm. th this is a very vague... Um, idea and it's going to appear much more obvious in retrospect because we're talking about averages in the long term so okay. i would not be very enthusiastic about trading this you know i don't know okay. how this is going to play out so i wouldn't really uh, go ahead and uh, trade based on this because who knows what's going to happen okay. you know so you might sell at 130 but we might end up at 250 and then right, um, right. yeah i was thinking of scaling uh, if it did keep going up, and especially in a time period, if it, if all that happens within, let's say, January, February, March, we go up to 250, something crazy, 300, then I think it is more indicative of definitely a blow-off top, and there will be quite a large retracement. If we just kind of go sideways at 120 for several months, that would be different. I, I I can definitely see the case for that. Yeah, I don't think that's uh, mm -hmm. unreasonable. But again, I would also be there's there's the other case to consider, which is that the higher Bitcoin goes, basically the shittier um, fiat is, 
and sure. that just makes sure. it. Yeah. Um, you may, may have to sit through 18 months for that uh, bottom or close to the bottom of a bear sitting on an inflated dollar too. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, do you really want to go bet on the dollar right. at that point? Right. Like this is. Right. This yeah. Is, I, uh, I, and I definitely would only take a, a, a percentage of my holdings to, uh, to even do that swing trade during the cycle, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate everything you do in the space or you're, uh, you're awesome. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right, um, Bernardo. I think Danny wants to speak. He he said his mic is working now. So. Oh, okay. Danny. All right, Danny, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> Apologies about earlier. So, um, Seyfedeen, first, I just wanted to thank you. Um, thank I've you. read uh, the Bitcoin Standard uh, several times. It's really uh, changed my life. And I would agree with Natalie. It's my favorite book. <laughs> and... Uh, so I just wanted to uh, ask a follow-up question to an answer you gave previously about governments uh, essentially enabling monopolies. Um, how do you think about, um, you know, in the absence of government, let's say, um, you know, pricing cartels forming that type of thing in the absence of government? And um, also just wanted to ask if you know when the fiat standard audio version will be available? If you bought the audio version from my website, you'll get it today or tomorrow. It's finally done. Got it. it should have been done uh, a few days earlier, but we realized we'd forgotten a couple of little details. So it took a little bit longer, but it should be done. Right, Max? Yes, it's edited and uh, yeah, we're just figuring out to ship it, but um, in the coming days, it should be there. So yeah. Yeah, it's basically done. Awesome. Is that is that it, or do you have another, any other questions? Um, well, I was just curious to know how you would how you'd think of a pricing cartel forming in the absence of. Oh government. yes, that's right. Yeah, sorry, I slipped that. Yeah, I think this was um, this is this is uh, there's a good treatment of this question in uh, Rothbard's uh, Man and Economy and State, and in fact. This is, uh, this is an example of something where um, Rothbard and Mises disagreed. This is like one of the very few things in which Rothbard critiqued Mises, or maybe even the one only thing in which he critiqued Mises. Mises had mentioned in his book that uh, monopolies can happen um, and that uh, you can have collusions between, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I don't feel comfortable putting words in Mises' mouth, um, particularly as I'm about to critique this position now. So that would be rude of me, unbecoming. But basically, um, you know, if you want to break the brains of, a lo- of, of your local Keynesian, just ask him, name me one monopoly that has ever existed any time that was not enforced by government. And they'll just get really angry at you and tell you, well, you know, government has to step in in all of these examples because it would be a monopoly anyway, so government has to step in. But the reality is every time there's a monopoly, there are always governmental reasons for why these emerge. And if you study the um, macro textbook or micro textbook where they discuss monopolies, uh, basically micro and macro are just uh, elaborate uh, psyops to get you to believe in government uh, management of the economy. And so when they discuss monopolies, it's all about how uh, monopolies are evil and government needs to step in. Okay, so what causes monopolies? There's a couple of unconvincing examples, but the 
only real true examples which are applicable in the real world are a government regulations that prevent entry into the market and prevent exit from the market by rescuing firms that continue to fail and by subsidizing failed firms. That's one hand. And then on the other hand, there is um, patents, which is another form of government intervention in the market that is completely illegitimate. Um, it's, it's a violation of property rights to uh, try and impose uh, rules about what people can do with their own with their own uh, uh, with their own property based on the fact that somebody else has done this before you, and that if you do it, you go to jail. So if you take away patents and you take away government regulations, you take away every single example of a bad monopoly that has ever existed. I challenge you to find me one. Got it. That's a great answer. Thank you. Cheers. I remember it's it's really been this was like one of the very early things that I first got when I started getting into Austrian economics and I remember in grad school this was as early as grad school I'd ask people all right name one and you can just see the anger inside their brain as the brain starts working over time and the hamster's wheels start spinning inside the brain and nothing comes out. I'm, I'm still to get one answer to this question. Like, all right, here's an example of a company, just this evil monopolist who's evil out on the free market and government has nothing to do with it and then government came in and stopped him from being evil and bad. In fact, what you notice is that if somebody can develop a sort of monopoly because they introduce a good product, um, you know, they introduce a very good product on the market and they eat a large share of the market, that's when they move to, uh, that's when they start making all the noises about inequality is bad and we need the government to help the poor people and we need more regulations of the market in order to prevent uh, bad people from doing bad things. And so they uh, they do a bunch of silly charity, well, not charity, a bunch of vote buying by giving out money to poor people to buy their votes. And then they use the allegiance of the poor people in order to pass laws that allow them to regulate their own industry. And they use that power to turn their industry into their own thing. Right. That totally makes sense. Uh, similarly, uh, I know I heard you mention a, co a comment I can't remember at what point, but uh, just thinking about, you know, the inventor of the wheel having a patent and, you know, the fact that like he just invented the wheel because he wanted a wheel. So that that made it also very clear to me. Exactly. And, you know, um, imagine if we had a patent on it, you know, would it have incentivized him to invent the wheel faster? I don't think so. I think that the benefit of the wheel is there for everybody. It's, it's enormous, whether there's a patent or not. And so people will come up with these inventions because they want to benefit from them. And if you put a patent on it, you're just hurting other people and preventing them from benefiting from it. Totally. Thank you. Cheers. Bernardo? Hi. So first of all, I would just like to say thank you and congratulations on the Jordan Peterson interview that came out yesterday uh, or two days ago. It was absolutely fantastic, especially the part where he's visibly mind-blown about the learning that transporting electricity now tends to cost zero eventually because of Bitcoin. That was, that was crazy. Uh, 
two of the most impactful books I've ever read. So Twelve Rules for Life and the Bitcoin Standard. And my question now would be, uh, on the short to midterm, do you think the powers that be, the ones who are who have the most to lose from Bitcoin being adopted worldwide, do you think they have the power through uh, future ETFs and stuff like that to manipulate prices and shake off weak hands? Uh, how bad can it get before uh, they actually give up? I mean, the short answer is I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't really know if they're able to do that. But um, I guess you know the, the entirety of the fiat standard is a way of um, trying to come up with a way to answer this question. Um, and the main argument here is that no, they won't be able to, or at least maybe not won't be able to, but they're far less likely to be able to do this successfully with uh, Bitcoin then with uh, gold because um, you know the two points are A, the supply is completely transparent so everybody knows exactly how many coins there are and everybody can see every address how much coins they have and so you can enforce a lot more transparency on people by figuring out what they uh, you know look at institutions and how much they hold and what liabilities they have and you can see their actions on the chain and then you can get a much better idea about what they are uh, doing. That's one aspect of it. And then uh, the other one is that it's, it's the saleability across space. It's the fact that you can move uh, Bitcoin around much faster. Remember in, in chapter one of the fiat standard, when I look at the history of how England went off the gold standard, there was no point in, at which the uh, British army went door to door and put a gun to people's head and told them, give us your gold or we kill you. That did not happen. Naturally, just because they're using uh, Bitcoin, uh, sorry, just because they're using gold, the majority of the gold was in banks. And in order for you to use your gold, you had to use it in the bank. And in order to buy anything from somebody who was not in your same neighborhood, you, you generally used the bank. And um, so the majority of money was already in the banks. All that the government did was just took the money from the banks. So it's the centralization that made the confiscation of gold and then the demonetization possible. And that centralization is because, uh, because gold cannot travel far. It's very expensive to move gold around. So um, Bitcoin stands a better chance of uh, doing this because of resisting this because um, it's um, it, it's far easier for for people to move it. So um, we're not going to have something like a central bank per country. We're going to have something like thousands of central banks, and uh, central banks don't have to be in your same country. And you can take your money out of your central bank very quickly. And you know, even if we're saying central banks develop that where we have second layer solutions. You can take your money out of your central bank very quickly and still use it for trade internationally. Yes, on-chain fees are going to be expensive, but uh, you know, if you suspect that there's a bank run brewing, if you suspect that the central bank is doing things, when you were in England in 1914, you couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't just tell them, no, I want to keep my gold. Well then, all right, keep your gold. Well, now you've got a nice little shiny rock in your house. It's not very useful for anything um, because the majority of the spending that you do is not with people that are um, within walking distance from your house. And so 
you can't use your bank anymore. You can't trade internationally. You can't get paid with gold from your clients internationally. You can't uh, import things uh, from foreigners with gold. So um, it just makes it uh, it just makes it very conducive to being uh, controlled, and that's not the case, in my opinion, with Bitcoin. So I think Bitcoin has a much better chance of resisting that. Uh, from uh, I agree with you that it's completely unconfiscatable and inevitably at the, the end they're going to lose this war but however like uh, Bill Gates for example he has gone to the media and said that unless you have Elon Musk money you shouldn't touch Bitcoin otherwise you're going to go bankrupt so my fear would be in the short to the midterm medium term if they're not going to like given the fact that they can print an infinite amount of fiat won't they just hold down prices artificially and, and, and destroy and try to demonetize uh, Bitcoin until eventually they lose? Isn't that a risk? Because uh, if everything is going up in prices exponentially and Bitcoin is being artificially held down on 60K forever, uh, that's kind of an issue, right? We're going to get poorer in the meantime. I mean, how are they going to hold it down forever? That's the thing. The, do they have a Bitcoin printer? Can they... Um, find more Bitcoin to fool my node into thinking their Bitcoin is uh, equal to my Bitcoin. Good luck. That's a, my, that's my exactly can... where I. That's exactly where I'm lost. And uh, can't they just hold down the prices artificially by short selling it in the futures or stuff like no, that? No, the way that they are basically holding down the price is that uh, I mean, and 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 this isn't some kind of evil conspiracy. It's out there in the open. And it's very obvious. It's just, um, it's by having people like Bill Gates go on TV and tell you don't buy Bitcoin. And so all of the morons who listen to Bill Gates uh, are going to not buy Bitcoin, which I think is a great thing because fuck them. Um, it's good that they don't buy Bitcoin. And, um, you know, the other thing is uh, shit coins. I think shit coins really are the real fiat attack on Bitcoin. Like, um, people in Bitcoin had spent many years trying to imagine all kinds of sophisticated attack vectors on uh, Bitcoin that, you know, the government is going to do this and do that. Um, it turns out the real attack is that uh, you're going to watch your friends and family get into stupid uh, dog tokens and uh, get wrecked. And, you know, they're just going to buy some, uh, they're going to spend their life savings on an entry in somebody's stupid database and uh, watch it disappear over time and they're going to miss out on bitcoin that's going to hold down the price for a very long time perhaps you know uh, but again i can't really complain about that because um it's it, it is what it is bitcoin is going to take time to grow like uh, as michael saylor says it you know if we go at faster than 200% a year um the wings fly off the airplane you know there are limits to just how fast you can go and this is pretty fast for me. Like all of that stuff is already pre-programmed and priced in. You know, there are cattle who listen to Bill Gates in the world and uh, who trust him. And uh, it's going to take us time to work through <laughs> getting, making them poor or making them stop being cattle. Um, it's, it's not going to be a daily process. And that's why it's going to take time for Bitcoin to go from zero to infinity. Okay, clear. Thanks. Yeah, 200% a year is quite good. I'm, I'm happy with that number. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, exactly. Cheers. Victoria?
Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you. Um, and say first, thanks so much for everything. I just want to echo what everyone has said. And I apologize for not being able to take my video off. Every time I try to turn my camera on, my, um, my Zoom uh, crashes. But I wanted to just mention and thank you specifically, say, for something that you said in your podcast with your discussion with Jack Mallers. Um, you had gone back to something that you and Michael Saylor discussed about talking about taking on debt, about, about as far as like debt, not letting it control you, but the fact that fiat is made to, is devalues. It actually helped me make a decision. I had been trying to figure out how to best take my retirement money out of a retirement or out of a what you know a traditional retirement account and put it into bitcoin without having to put it into a bitcoin ira because i want more control over my bitcoin um and it really helped me what you said to him because it helped me make the decision like it just makes sense because i'm like i'm not old enough to actually take money out without uh, without you know incurring a penalty and i'm in the us and um and, you know, and then you pay taxes, which isn't a big deal because, you know, but um, it really helped me because I realized that the the fee that any any fees that I have to pay to do this, because I want to I don't want to leave it in that account. I want to put it into something I can control. It's 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 an it's like it's it's almost a no brainer at this point. You know, the fact that that money, whether, you know, uh, whether I were to just I obviously wouldn't probably pay cash with it because I'd probably put any cash into Bitcoin as well. But even if I were to take on debt, just as, you know, an option, it means nothing. The debt means the fiat debt means nothing as long as it's just, you know, as long as actually it's not, it doesn't control me. But I just wanted to tell you, thank you. That helped me make the decision on, you know, what my strategy is going to be with the, with the, with what I have in my retirement right now and how to transition that into Bitcoin. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Yep. All right. Who else wants to add anything? Safe. I have a question. Sure. Uh, my name's Brian. Uh, nice to meet you. Thanks for, for everything. Um, so I am one of the main reasons that I've, that I've arrived and, and, gotten deep into the crypto space was because initially it was, you know, I had a very short time preference. I saw friends, you know, in, in coins making crazy money. Right. And as I read books like yours, I, I started my time preference change, just like you talk about all those things. And my heart, my heart initially, it turned from wanting to make short-term gains to uh, like a, a, you know, a longer time horizon worldview. Uh, and I'm really in the space to be able to build finances for causes and organizations that I believe in and that I want to support. And so I'm curious if you know of any Bitcoin foundations or uh, networks or social media platforms that I could follow to connect with, uh, to network with people who want to use crypto or use Bitcoin specifically uh, to, you know, support causes and people they believe in. Um. Honestly, I, I, I don't really know uh, a lot. I think the best form of charity, um, many Bitcoiners have said this and they've been mocked for it, but it's kind of hard to argue with this. 
um, the best form of charity is to just um, huddle Bitcoin. Uh, you hold Bitcoin, mm -hmm. price of Bitcoin goes up and uh, Bitcoin um, kills central banking earlier. So um, I, I don't really know about okay. charities. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Michael Saylor that said, you know, one of the most generous things you could do it would be to lose your keys and lose your access to your Bitcoin, right? Because you're making almost like a donation. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I don't plan on doing that, but okay. Thank you. Have a great day. Cheers. Hey, Safe. I uh, was listening in with you more to the Fiat Standard on Twitter Spaces. I was, uh, and we were talking about uh, the sovereign individual and just how you started to think that you, you were rethinking some of your opinions on that. Just wondering if you could elaborate more on where you were starting to diverge away from the thesis of the sovereign individual. You know, I've actually been, uh, I, I've, we were, I was discussing this with uh, someone. I think we want to do a whole seminar on this uh, topic. Um, looking to get into it in more detail. But I think um, the main thesis, the, the main reason that I'm beginning to question this book is not uh, the part about Bitcoin. I think the part about Bitcoin is still valid because if Bitcoin takes away the money printer, from governments then it's going to put a massive dent in the ability of governments to continue to do all the stupid destructive things that they always do however i think the part of the story that is um, um that may be worth a rethink at this point is all of the uh, other stuff about how you know the the microprocessor and the computer chip is going to obsolete the nation state um, there are definitely many ways in which this is the case. Like, yes, uh, you know, Uber uh, getting around the Taxi Licenses Commission and um, many, many, many examples. Of that. That's probably a trivial example. But, uh, you know, taking, the th taking a lot of things from the physical realm into the digital realm makes it much harder for governments to control those things. But I think the last year, the coronavirus crisis has been uh, massively uh, challenging to that thesis because we are seeing now that governments have managed to utilize all of this, uh, have managed to utilize the microchip in the service of Leviathan, and they've done a very good job at it. You know, they, they're using these um, technologies to make uh, the world um, far more centralized and to give themselves far more power, and it's worked, you know. Um, Think about the vaccine pass. Think about central bank digital currencies. Think about the ability to have all of your information uh, connected to the central bank and then the central bank deciding whether you get to eat or not. I mean, just imagine the kind of control that's coming now where uh, there's, every time there's going to be a natural disaster, they're going to tell you that that's because of climate change and that the solution is for you to stay home and now your car won't drive more than uh, 15 minutes away from your house. And your credit card won't work in any shop that is more than 15 minutes away from your house. And your phone will start uh, making very, very loud noises uh, to inform everybody around you that you are more than 15 minutes away from your house. And, uh, you know, the possibilities are limitless for what governments can do with this. And it's, it's insane. You know, the dystopia that we're seeing now is just... Uh, 
you know, it's 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 obviously now it's being ma- it's being masked with the vaccine. This is just about a vaccine, and they're capitalizing on the gullible cattle that have fallen for all of this nonsense. That it really is about health. That the same government that wants you to eat garbage and is constantly telling you to eat the garbage um, that their sponsors produce is now so concerned about their health that they need to control your movements entirely to prevent you from moving around in a way that jeopardizes your health. Um, people are buying it right now that it is about um, health and vaccines, but they, it's, it's, I mean, you can see the model in China and how that went, and you can see how history works. You know, not, no government program ever gets in, uh, introduced and then decommissioned. Nobody's going to say, oh, well, uh, well, now the coronavirus thing is over, or I get rid of the apps. Well, no. We're going to utilize it for a million different things, and it's just going to be um, it's just going to be open for every government in the world to use in order to control the capital that it has. So, uh, I think rumors of the death of the totalitarian state and the modern managerial state have been uh, massively exaggerated. I think uh, the coronavirus was a massive swing of the pendulum back in the direction of despotism and totalitarianism and just having the worst kind of human beings in the world being in charge of increasing chunks of everybody else's lives. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, Theo. How are you doing? Fine, you. Yeah. Uh, thank you for everything. Um, I just want to build upon wh- what has been said before by several people here. Um, like, we all know that fiat will devalue at an accelerating rate uh, 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 in the future. And so the incentive to take on debt uh, um, uh, with your Bitcoin gets higher by the day. And you see many more people talking about that, like uh, Jack Mollos and, uh, uh, of course, Sailor that we uh, already mentioned here. And you also see a lot of companies, exchange and stuff like that, starting to provide um, loans uh, backed by Bitcoin. Do you think this could, at some point, uh, create such an incentive that a lot of people um, collateralize their Bitcoin in that way and that it creates some honeypot that is too big to resist for governments and that at some point, they just like come up uh, maybe at the OECD scale or something like that with a, uh, their FDR moment where they will like just basically subpoena the exchange and, and say them, if you don't want to go to jail, you have to hand the, the, the keys to the Bitcoin you have uh, deposited on your, ex- on your exchange. And that's at the end of the day, it could be one of the most uh, successful attack vector they would have uh, uh, to fight against um, Honey Badger. Yeah, I have to say, I had not really thought about this, but yeah, I think um, if this happens, it's going to lead to a lot of people putting up their Bitcoin as collateral for loans in centralized institutions. And that's an attack vector, but it's an attack vector against the people who do this. It's not going to completely destroy the value proposition of Bitcoin, you know? So if 90% of Bitcoiners have their Bitcoin with, let's say, five large custodians or three large custodians, 
And then the three governments that control the headquarters of this, they take the CEOs, they put them in a room and put a gun to their head, and then they take all of their Bitcoins. Well, okay, so then what? What are they going to do with that? They've got, let's say, 18 million Bitcoins now, and there's 1 million Bitcoin out in the wild with the people who don't want to hold. I mean, this is like an extreme worst case scenario. They have 18 million Bitcoin in the hands of the government. What are they going to do with them? You can't shut down Bitcoin. I mean, you can burn them, and then you're just giving a massive, massive, massive wealth transfer to the people who have the 1 million Bitcoin who didn't do that. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, it's uh, it's it's just uh, it's like you hacked the exchanges, but it's much better than hacking the exchanges for the people who didn't put their money on the exchange, because it just means their Bitcoin gets much more expensive, and it's worse for the people who got hacked because now the Bitcoin that they want to buy has just gotten much more expensive to buy. Yeah, I agree with you, but uh, don't you think like they just could do exactly the same they have done with gold, like just put them in cold storage bit, uh, in central banks, saying to the people, now we will give you like this uh, little digital uh, monies that you can have on your smartphone. And uh, for you, it's not redeemable in Bitcoin, but between states, we will uh, settle our debts uh, uh, using Bitcoin and just... Uh, make a, a, a um, sort of a new Bretton Woods uh, uh, on the back of the Bitcoin they seized, which basically could end up the same way if a, a really large quantity, uh, as you said, which I, I totally understand is a totally catastrophic, uh, difficult to imagine scenario. But um, I mean, they, they could do a, a kind of reset of the financial system that way. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm just saying it, it's it's a possibility. Yes, but again, Bitcoin hodlers who have their own private keys are not affected. And so the thing continues to function for them. They just raise the price. And, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it buys them a lot of time because you take a lot of wealth from the Bitcoiners and you make them... Um, um, like you take a lot of the wealth that's already stored in Bitcoin and then you make the fiat that's out there a much bigger percentage of the world's wealth. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it won't change a thing for Bitcoiners that hold their own keys, but it could be an impediment to a return to sound money in some sense for the, the general people, I mean. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. But again, uh, I mean... Still a very outlandish scenario. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks, thanks for your answer. Thank you. Anybody want to ask another question before we uh, finish up? All right. Well, thank you guys for joining. This has been fun. Um, and I will see you next uh, Monday. Take care. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers, old bud. Bye. Bye.